0: Hello and welcome to the Cultural Peeps podcast. My name is Ian Wealdon and I'm a lecturer in the School of Arts and Cultures at Newcastle University. This series is part of an ongoing project which explores different career pathways across the museum, gallery, heritage and wider cultural sectors. I really want this series to do three things. The first is to help early career professionals understand the huge range of ever-changing job profiles that now exist. The second aim is to help those professionals interpret job titles in the context of different venues and organisations. Sometimes jobs with the same title can be radically different depending on the organisation. The third aim is to help listeners understand that the people that make up any field of work are all human, and that in turn plays a significant part in their unfolding career pathway and decision making processes. A few caveats. The recordings that form the basis for the podcasts aren't technically perfect. They're often grabbed in busy offices and in between meetings, so you can frequently hear the everyday world of work whirring on in the background. Just a final note, these podcasts are edited down from longer conversations, but I've tried to keep in as much of the original content as possible. Hi, and welcome to episode two of the Cultural Peeps podcast. I'm here in Newcastle University's Quadrangle, just outside the Armstrong building, which is where I interviewed today's guest, Keith Merrin. Keith is the chief executive of Sunderland Culture, which comprises of Arts Centre Washington, the National Glass Centre, Northern Gallery for Contemporary Arts, Sunderland Museum and Winter Gardens, the Fire Station and the Citywide Programme. I first met Keith when he was director of Beadsworld in 2004 but it wasn't really until he took over as the director of Woodhorn Museum that I really got to know him well. During his time at Woodhorn Keith led the museum from a local authority governance structure to an independent trust, Woodhorn Charitable Trust as it was called at the time. It's now called Museums Northumberland and that incorporates Berwick Museum and Art Gallery which is housed in England's first barracks, Hexham Old Jail which is England's oldest Morpeth Chantry Bagpipe Museum which is situated in a medieval building and of course Woodhorn Museum itself which is located in a scheduled ancient monument. I think Keith's career pathway has been a really interesting one and one of the reasons I wanted to include him in the podcast was because of his approach to and interest in management and leadership so rather than having arrived in his current role through a passion for a particular subject specialism within the sector and then being promoted from say, a curatorial or learning role, which is arguably a more common pathway. Most of Keith's career has specifically been about a focus on managing, developing, growing, and leading on projects, organisations, and initiatives. It's a pattern that can be seen from his early work with the Northumberland Wildlife Trust, right the way through to his current role as Chief Executive of Sunderland Culture. In today's conversation, Keith explains his early decision-making processes around opting to work in the cultural sector rather than using those management skills in a commercial or profit-driven environment, something that makes for really interesting listening. In 2004, Keith undertook the CLAW Leadership Programme, a programme on which he now mentors, And the CLAW programme was a high profile initiative launched in the early 2000s to help identify individuals with leadership potential and provide them with the skills that they need to push the sector into a new phase. We talk about the reasons for that programme being set up, the impact it had on Keith and his career and how it's helped shape the cultural sector that we all now know and work in. And out of this comes a chat about the impact and issues around Christmas decision to announce free entry to museums in the UK back in 2001. We also talk about the importance of networking and how contacts and relationships can help people to strategically build their careers. And the last big theme that runs through our conversation is one that is going to repeatedly emerge in this podcast, and that's around partnership working. As always, I've put links to sites, organizations, and projects that are mentioned in the podcast description. So if there's anything that you'd like to look up that Keith and I cover in this conversation, then that's a good starting point. Don't forget that you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants that are featured, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. That's it for me for now. I hope you enjoy this episode and you find it useful. Hi, Keith, and thanks for joining me today. Just to start off, could you
1: tell me a little bit about yourself and what your current role is? Okay, so my current role is uh, Chief Executive of a thing called Sunderland Culture, which is is a work in progress at the moment. It's a a brand-new kind of organisation that brings together uh, the university uh, in Sunderland, the city council in Sunderland, and uh, the private sector, business sector, to create uh, a single body which runs culture at a strategic level in the city but also at an operational level in terms of running the venues run by those organisations. Uh, right now I'm also director of the National Glass Centre but over the, the coming few months uh, I'm going to also have within my remit, the, well I already do have actually the Northern Gallery for Contemporary Art, uh, Sunderland Museum, uh, I think called the Fire Station which is an arts hub that houses dance and performance but we're onto which we're also adding a theatre over the next 12 months, brand new, new build and also an arts centre in Washington. So it'll become a, a culture trust, but one, uh, although there are, there are culture trusts around the country, most of them have come out of a local authority. Whereas this is actually one that brings together bits of the local authority, bits of the university and bits of brand new private sector led yeah. development. So, uh, yeah, so I have a, a, I suppose a direct responsibility at the moment in terms of running cultural venues and a strategic responsibility for this culture body across the city. Part of of that remit is running big citywide projects like the recent bid to have uh, Sunderland named as UK City of Culture in 2021, which was unfortunately unsuccessful, uh, but an amazing process to go through in terms of galvanizing the entire city focused around a single aim around arts and culture. You've talked about lots of different job titles there within the role that
0: you've got. So that overarching one, chief exec, and then also director. How how important are those titles in the work that you do? So helping, for example, to define roles that you have or limit roles that you might have? Um, That's
1: an interesting question. Uh, I don't think that that personally... I don't. I, I'm, I'm not that interested in job titles, <laughs> uh, which I know some people really get carried. You know, really love to know what their job title is, and, and uh, in some of my discussions with staff, sometimes I just say, well, "You tell me what you know. You tell me what you want your job title yeah. to be." Because I, but but I suppose um, people expect there to be a director of the National Glass Centre, I think, or the or the director of, of a particular venue, or the person in charge of a particular venue. So clearly that. Having that title and director of the National Glass Centre brings with it certain expectations, yeah. and and I think over time that certainly in Sunderland we're going to change that. You know they won't be a director of the National Glass Centre, yeah, because they'll be a chief executive of Sunderland culture, and then they'll be, you know, head of arts oh, or a yeah, curator underneath. or whatever, underneath within within those those venues. I think that uh, you know, in in my previous roles as well. As director of other museums, there is an expectation that you're a kind of expert on that particular field. So yeah. people will come to me as if I'm an expert on contemporary glass at yeah. the moment, or in um, you know, my previous role, as if I knew loads of stuff about uh, coal mining in the, in the northern coal fields. And actually, I don't know much but that, about But that's changed of those
0: quite things. a lot, hasn't it, in quite an interesting way. You know, a uh, fairly long time ago, the, the the head of a museum might be called a curator in that sense, and then we've moved to this director, and then and then the, uh, in some cases, you know, chief execs, where there's multiple operational activities that happen under that that banner. Do you think that reflects the change in
1: nature of of the work that that those cultural venues are doing? I think it it does, but it, it more accurately reflects the changes in governance models. Right. So. Uh, Obviously in a, in a local authority setting, you have a chief executive of the council, yeah. and then you know, somewhere down the line is the curator of the museum. Yeah. And uh, as, you move, as you start to see more independent museums, so as more and more local authorities are choosing to move their museums out of local authorities and into trusts, yeah. then those jobs change because you know, essentially my background is being the chief executive of a ch- charity,
0: yeah.
1: running an independent organisation. And, and so uh, it's less about being the curator and much more about running an organisation, whereas if you're within a, a bigger body like a university or a, or a company or a city council, you're, you're clearly not the chief executive yeah. of that organisation. Yeah. And even, to be honest, even within universities, within local authorities, where you've got a, a, a museums or galleries or arts venues of a scale, because... So much of what you're expected to do now is really about income generation and about management yeah. of resources. That I think the kinds of people who, who are being brought in to do those jobs absolutely need to understand the art form or the uh, the, the particular area of, of expertise that a, that a venue has, but more importantly, need to be able to manage the conflicting demands of income generation on one hand. Uh, pushing resources out other and diversifying yeah. audiences. Yeah, of course. You know, there's a kind of very little, actually, about the art form because uh, often you're able to buy in the art form specialism yeah. in a different way.
0: If somebody had said to you when you were 15, you'll be chief
1: exec, was that something that you could have foreseen yourself doing? It's, absolutely not, is the, is the simple answer. I think I, I can't really remember what I wanted to do when I was 15. I had to go through quite a long period of wanting to be an archaeologist. So uh, in some ways, that's probably the closest thing to, to how parts of my career panned out. So how old were you then? I reckon probably, uh, maybe a bit, a little bit younger than that. that uh, so kind of, so 12, 12 13, or 13, yeah. I uh, had this idea of, uh, in the course, uh, when you're 12 or 13, being an archaeologist is about going to Egypt. and you Yeah, know, and so it's like the Indiana Jones kind yeah, of, you yeah, thought yeah, that absolutely. was what the archaeology. Act. Yeah, and, and many years later, I ended up as the uh, chair of the... Uh, Council for British Archaeology North. Right, and, uh, I always thought that was quite funny because I was virtually the only archaeologist who wasn't on that committee. Who <laughs> <laughs> was the chair of it, but probably the... Uh, so how did you get the, on the that? Easiest. But because I was running, at the time uh, that I started doing that, I was running a museum called Beadsworld in Jarrow, uh, which is a, a museum essentially based around an archaeological collection, a very important archaeological collection. And, uh, and, and I, I sort of took a leading role in uh, the display of archaeology and more importantly in engaging people with it yeah. and uh, I suppose if if I have any expertise in the sector it's around but, engagement yeah. of, of audiences, getting people involved, getting people to uh, to want to engage in, in, a, in new and interesting ways yeah. with, with what we're doing in, in whatever venue, whatever art form, whatever collection that we're dealing with. So no, uh, certainly as a teenager I uh, I think probably 15 I was probably want to be a journalist and then did that influence you know your decision of subjects that you took at that point no I don't think it did I think it's funny uh, my son now is is 16 and uh, certainly when he was doing his GCSEs there was a real pressure to uh, understand what he wanted to do and he found that you know he was I don't know what I want to do in my life, yeah, yeah. but the teachers are telling me I have to know. Yeah. So and I said to him, you know, just do what you enjoy doing because uh, uh, certainly I don't think I would ever reference anything I did at my GCSE level or uh, O-levels as they were then yeah. uh, on a daily basis. I, you know, I have an O-level in accountancy. Which is probably probably, most, probably the most useful thing in my current role, to be honest. Uh, but then, uh, and similarly, with, to be honest, with my A-levels, I chose things that I'd been good at at, right. uh, at GCSE level to do rather than thinking that that, that was my career. But, but I then did a business studies degree. Right. So, you know, I've come from a completely different route, I suspect, to many people working in the sector at the moment. Uh, although I was always very clear that... Uh, I didn't want to work in a profit, in a for-profit environment, I wanted to work in a non-profit environment. Oh, that's interesting. So, so when, I, when I did the business studies degree, it wasn't about generating wealth necessarily, right. it was more about you know, getting the skills to uh, work in the, in the kind of charity or voluntary sector and that probably as much reflects my family background as, as much as it does uh, anything else. So did your parents influence you at any point in
0: this process? And, in, 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 you know, have you kind of been drawn towards what they were doing or been reactionary
1: against what they were doing? That's the, yeah, I wouldn't say my, my dad uh, spent most of his life, he's had two careers and his first career was as a, a youth leader and uh, youth and community management or administration I suppose you might call it and then his second career as a Baptist minister so right. I, I wasn't necessarily drawn to becoming to, <laughs> to, to join the church but I suppose that sense of you know he he and and my mom uh, although more in a voluntary capacity than a, than a professional capacity had spent most of their life I- doing things that were of public good I yeah. suppose and and so it would be hard to not be influenced by that yeah uh, you know and in all always around to see to see that it it doesn't necessarily bring you vast wealth and riches, yeah, yeah. but it yeah. does. You know, but but it, you can see the impact that it has on a on a
0: community level. Yeah. After university, after the business studies
1: degree, what happened then? As I say, I came out of university, not really with a business studies degree, which and during that time I'd specialised in on marketing. And uh, at the end of that period, didn't really know what to do, and. It, <laughs> I think I just saw a job in the paper which was uh, working in nature conservation right. uh, on a, on a programme to save the red squirrel and uh, I thought that sounds interesting and what they were looking for wasn't a nature conservationist and this is I think maybe will become a feature of what we talk about but the, what they needed was somebody to engage people in that process right. and, and raise the profile of it so they, uh, it was a big uh, big project funded primarily privately uh, by, uh, as was Northern Rock Foundation uh, no, actually, I think it was Northern Rock as a bank. It might even predate the foundation, uh, and they uh, had funded this project run by Northumberland Wildlife Trust, which was about uh, understanding more about the reasons for why the red squirrel was dying out. But more importantly, or from my perspective, more importantly. Conducting a massive public survey of where red squirrels were, yeah. because it, there was a sense—well, there wasn't a sense there was a knowledge that red squirrels were dying out in, in most of the country, yeah. but the northeast of England was one of its last strongholds. Uh, as the grey squirrel moved across the country, the red squirrels seemed to die out, and nobody yeah. really understood the relationship between those two. So there was a scientific element to that, working with University of Newcastle on uh, a research project in Kielder Forest, looking at uh, you know actually tra- trapping and. Uh, tracking and tagging red squirrels, and then there was a public engagement program around that which was really raising the profile of the plight of the red squirrel yeah. and uh, engaging people in looking for red squirrels, sending in sightings of reds and grays. And to be honest it was, it was a brilliant job <laughs> because straight, you know straight out of university at the age of whatever nineteen uh, no, 21 22 I was uh, you know I was on Sky TV and I was on you know I was hanging out with Bill Oddy <laughs> uh, who, uh, and, and, and doing really amazing things and you know, promoting nature conservation and, and red squirrels. It's funny, I suppose, the, the, you know, that that at the time, you don't think about it, it seemed yeah, quite yeah. normal. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, uh, Bill Oddie, who uh, was, a I suppose at that time, was still quite a famous television yeah, yeah. celebrity and, and was known to a lot of people for various reasons. Uh, uh particularly for, for as, a, as a famous bird watcher yeah, and i had to take him out bird watching <laughs> one night so that was a really weird thing but uh yeah it was it was good and i suppose yeah it was a really good opportunity for me but it was at the time i took it on i think it was a 6 month contract and again i don't know you know in other conversations that you have you might pick this up but i went to that and the right 6 months is great that's yeah, yeah. fine and uh i don't I, I for the first two or three years of my career, I was constantly on six-month contracts yeah, or just... a month a or you know, so like how long were you there for? How many? Did you get Wildlife uh, no, Trust. I was there in the end for about five years. Wow, okay. Uh, so I moved on from the Red Squirrel programme. They just kept me on doing bits and bobs. Actually, one of the phone calls I took during that period was from uh, a big uh, utility company at the time, I think, I think called North East Water, which doesn't exist now who uh, said we loved what you're doing with red squirrels and we'd like to give give the wildlife well, trust some money to do something else i was able to bring in money and we did a big program around uh, ponds and that then paid for more of my time to to stay mm-hmm. on so i suppose early on i also learned that so you're <laughs> uh, kind
0: of creating roles for yourself within that organization through a combination yeah. of opportunity and necessity so were you designing those projects
1: yes yeah, and, and i suppose the key was i was because it was a small organization it was independent you know it, it wasn't part of a local authority or anything it was a charity it had its own chief exec and its own board i had the freedom and the flexibility to do, to do that. that yeah and, and they put that trust in me so that was that was brilliant and uh yeah so so able to see opportunities and, and almost create yeah. new it rose for myself but also they they then uh because of just opportunity, Somebody then left who was the marketing manager and they said, well, do you want to stay on and do that job? And I said, yeah.
0: Are you the kind of person that would describe themselves as interested in lots of things? Because the hallmarks of those kind of decision-making processes seems to be people that are constantly fascinated by everything, so everything's interesting and everything's worth giving a go. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Is that yeah, what you yeah, would? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. I put words into your no, mouth. you have there put a words bit, into my mouth, but is that because kind of, well, there's definitely a pattern there? It, I think it well that. sums
1: up my personality. Yeah, right. and I Can get interested in most things. So the
0: marketing side of that 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 obviously adds a different set of skills there. So you're starting to diversify, you know, and d- develop quite an interesting portfolio there of of things
1: that you can possibly do. What? How long? How long did you do that role for? Uh, as I said, well within in Northumberland, I did it for about five years, and that also included running uh, a couple of visitor centres. You can then start to map that across yeah, to, of to what I do now, yeah. because there was some venue. I do not get involved necessarily in the venue management, but there's some venues in that. The, the Wildlife Trust is, a, is an odd organisation, in that there are independent Wildlife Trusts. There are something like forty-seven of them around the UK, but there's also an, a national federation where they come together. Yeah and uh, through working in Northampton I'd had some opportunities to get involved in some of the national discussions and uh, which was very interesting and then I was uh, offered the opportunity to go and work in Kent for the Kent Wildlife Trust as their marketing and fundraising manager uh, uh, which was a bigger a bigger organisation It was more money for me involved in that and so I went and did that for uh, two three years and then was offered got more involved in some of the national work that was going on and was offered the opportunity to go and work at a national level. Right. And so then uh, moved to what's called the Royal Society of Wildlife Trust, which is the sort of governing body of the Wildlife Trust, and worked initially in a marketing and fundraising role and then through a series of opportunities that presented themselves, ended up running it, uh, ended up as a kind of director of operations, a sort of de facto chief exec of that organisation. But in, alongside what was called a director general, so there was a kind of, uh, in the way you get but a lot of big arts organisations, actually a sort of double header there where you had a, uh, a, ex, a nature conservation expert, somebody who would be respected in the field, yeah, a alongside head. a sort of, you know, somebody may, who raises the money and makes yeah. it kind of operate. Yeah. So that's where I got most of my experience in sort of general running of a, of a charity, right. running an organisation, so I was responsible for kind of finance and HR as well as the sort of marketing, fundraising type stuff.
0: So all of a sudden, that day that you looked at the newspaper,
1: saw that job has turned into something. And working at a national level for the biggest membership organisation. I know it's interesting that there are are a couple of sliding doors moments in my life. One is (laughs) is before I went to university at the age of uh, 18 or whatever, uh, I... I don't know why, <laughs> applied to join uh, Sainsbury's fast track management oh, scheme, okay. so I uh, uh, could have, and I, sometimes I kind of like quite like this idea, I could have run a supermarket, <laughs> and I'm not sure how uh, transferable my skills would be from there, but I was, ex- I was offered a place as a, as a supermarket manager on their fast track management, but right. in the end decided to go to university. Really? At the age of 18, you know, when you come straight out of school, the, the idea of uh, money is quite attractive, yeah, yeah, but yeah. in the end I decided to follow a... A degree and, and you know a different a different route, and then another one was I applied to uh, do a marketing job within uh, leisure, within sort of leisure centres and, and stuff like that. Right. And again, uh, was offered that and didn't take it. So it was because I have a, a range, and at that time particularly I had a range of skills that were quite general. Yeah. And, and I suppose, um, but a good one, good a really good range of skills to have there. Yeah. One of my previous chief execs said to me once that uh, I don't quite know what it is that you do, but I like it. (laughs) (laughs) What you're describing is somebody that
0: isn't necessarily a specialist in terms of a subject area, but has lots of transferable skills that allow them to coordinate and manage and bring together other people that potentially do have those passionate, you know, interests in really
1: quite specific areas. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know... uh, again one of the features probably if you look right back through my career uh, you know which is I suppose nature conservation in some ways is quite different from, from what I'm doing now but it is that working with specialists yeah. So, and often those specialists are incredibly knowledgeable about a very specific thing yeah. but don't necessarily have the skills well, to, to, to communicate that in, in the most effective yeah. way or to understand how to resource what they might want to achieve yeah. so, so there's a degree of, of, of being able to interpret what they want, and also certainly at the, the Wildlife Trusts, with, with the, in that sort of role with the Director General, is is they, they you know he was the de facto head of the organisation, but had yeah. no ability to run an organisation really, yeah. and really heavily relied upon other people to to do that for him. But
0: that's really interesting, isn't it? Because you,
1: but you, I could you, never have done what he did because he was brilliant that, at that. You know, speaking at international conferences yeah. about issues affecting wildlife. Because right?
0: most people start with a real passion for a subject area and then as they progress they take on more management and either have to develop those skills or in some cases I think people sometimes resent having to take that management but that's just a natural course that a career takes. Whereas what you're describing is this ability, at a fairly young age to take on that management stuff as a kind of career within itself. Is
1: yeah, that- I, I, think, I think that's right, yeah. And, and I suppose... What goes alongside that is also an ability to distill key bits of information that you need. You know, people, and even so, even then, people would expect me to know a lot about red squirrels. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, I would have to go on the TV and talk about and red go, squirrels. Yeah. And so so uh, you know that ability to actually absorb enough information to be knowledgeable about yeah. something, but clearly not as much as somebody who spent the last four years or five years doing yeah, PhD it. or whatever yeah, yeah.
0: on it. So. So you were in Kent at this point.
1: Yeah. So as I said, then I got off this job at a national level, which yeah. was based in the East Midlands in Newark uh, and partly in London. So I worked out of two offices in in London and, and East Midlands, working at a national level in nature conservation, and uh, which was fine. But I suppose you get to the point where you think, well, how did I fall into <laughs> to all of this in the first place? Because yeah. nature conservation, what well, probably wasn't the thing that really floated my boat. And uh, and then again, I was reading the paper one day and uh, this is obviously pre-internet uh, pre-internet well, <laughs> just as the internet was, was kind of starting to become prevalent uh, you're really uh, pinpointing your I'm I'm <laughs> age yeah. uh, and I saw an advert for a job uh, as director of Beadsworld and uh, the interesting thing about Beadsworld is that it's in uh, based in my hometown which is a place called Jarrow in the northeast of England and um, I thought oh that that's interesting uh, As I've already said, I kind of had this uh, interest in archaeology when I was young. And uh, what was great was that when I looked into this job, what they were looking for wasn't an archaeologist or an expert on bead. They had people like that already on staff and on the trustees. What they were looking for was somebody to run what was essentially a million pound turnover charity Uh, with you know some challenges around uh, its income targets and its audience levels and and things like that yeah and to make and it had gone through a massive redevelopment uh, had a lot of money spent on it and needed to kind of find its place in the world and and move forward and that appealed to me uh, and seemed to fit the range of skills that I had which were about engaging people and about running an organization and about making it relevant and making the partnerships and, and things that needed to happen.
0: Was the fact that that was in Jaro, that one of the big attractive features? Did you want to come back to the northeast at that point? So you've kind of lived in Kent and then out of
1: London? Yeah, I mean, there's those kind of lifestyle choices associated with that, so I, I'd got married by that time right. and uh, had had my first child and yeah. was thinking, wouldn't it be nice to bring that child up in the northeast right. rather than...
0: Family support, support networks network yeah, and all yeah, of that kind of stuff.
1: I think it had always been a, a, a plan for myself and my wife to eventually get back to the Move northeast. East. Yeah, yeah.
0: Did that, was that role fairly static,
1: or did that change at all while you were...? That was fairly static, actually. As an organisation, it, it, it had a lot of problems. I mean, it subsequently has had more problems yeah. over the years. But at the time, uh, it had had a lot of investment. Uh, I used to have this press cutting stuck on my wall there uh, when I first arrived with the local paper, the Shields Gazette. Uh, country's oldest local newspaper, wrote an article basically saying you know, a new director appointed, Keith Merrin. Uh, uh, good luck to him because the whole place is a white elephant. It's not for the likes of us. It's been built for people in uh, North Newcastle and Jesmond, North Gosford. da 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 um, And, uh, oh, OK, that's, <laughs> that's a sort of interesting welcome. <laughs> but I suppose what that was pinpointing was a sense that it, it hadn't really connected very strongly with its community or didn't wasn't being seen to play a role in the local area. And I think that's partly deliberate because it is, it's a site, as if you're an archaeologist in particular or an Anglo-Saxon historian, that's a site of world importance. I mean, that's a really, uh, you know, and, and you see it on that scale. But if you live in Jarrow, which is a, a, a town that, that over the years has, has suffered quite a lot of knocks, as it's lost many of its traditional industries, you probably want it to be delivered a bit more into your local area. You want yeah. to feel a bit more... More ownership of it, and it, because it had changed and gone through all these changes, yeah, people always have an affection for what it used to be. You know, it used to be a lovely little museum. Now it's all very uh, corporate and big. So, so a lot of my work during that time was about re-engaging with the local community, with local decision makers, with the local. You know, was funded uh, to a, a reasonable degree by the local authority, and so managing although it was an independent charity, managing that relationship was very important, uh, and. I suppose the, the biggest single thing that I saw as an opportunity in that was that uh, I was, I'd been in post I don't know, about six months and I was invited to a meeting one day and it was called the World Heritage Site Meeting and I thought, oh, well, what's that? Nobody's ever mentioned this to me at my interview yeah. or anything like that. And it transpired that, that the site was on the tentative list of World Heritage Sites which had been drawn up by the UK government at some point in the mid-90s of all those sites that could be a World Heritage Site so it didn't guarantee you anything. So there was a big list of sites that could be World Heritage sites that fit the criteria. And I was a bit uh, gobsmacked when I saw that Weir Mathajara was on there, which in a sense formed part of, uh, and thought, well, this is a bit of a gift in terms of of galvanising support and and behind the museum. And started to to run with that to the extent that we eventually got selected as the UK's nomination for World Heritage Site status. Unfortunately, at that point, I left, but uh, we will come back to that. And, and it never, it never actually achieved world heritage status. But the fact that it that suddenly, people even believed that yeah. this place in Jarrow was, was you know, was of the same importance as someone like the Taj Mahal or yeah, the yeah. pyramids, was was a bit of a, uh, an eye opener for for a lot of local people. And uh, I, I had a second press cut, and I eventually stuck on my wall, which. Uh, said some words the effect of uh, Beadsworld is the jewel in the crown of South Tyneside, written by the same journalist who'd written it, it's a white <laughs> elephant, it's the jewel in the crown of, of South Tyneside and you know the most important thing we on it and you know to, so so that that was my proudest achievement in a way is that shifting mindset amongst, yeah, amongst the local that... stakeholders. Do you
0: think that that change was symptomatic of of the cultural offer or the the kind of position that cultural venues were starting to play at that point within a broader context for, for people. So gone from a, a place that museums or galleries or heritage sites were for an elite of some description. Um, so you, you kind of come... I guess you're coming into this in a, re- a really interesting point, aren't you? A, a real changing political
1: landscape of how culture is utilised. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that's that's very true. Uh, it was also, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hard to... Understate the impact of the national lottery yeah. on on uh, particularly the heritage sector but the arts sector as well. In that, suddenly there was a, a huge uh, resource available for places like Jarrow or you know uh, Newcastle Gateshead to invest in cultural attractions that hadn't, just hadn't been there before, there was just no, no ability yeah. to do that. And that, that I would say, there's, there's a, a double edged element to that, so there was a lot of suddenly a lot of massive uh, lottery-funded expansions of traditional museums and yeah. sites. Refurbishments as well. As well. And, and, yeah. and, and the good side of that is you have know, this amazing infrastructure of, of sites now. The downside of it was that, every, you know, that, that, that it, a lot of those sites which had been very community-focused yeah. lost that connection a little bit right. with their communities. And, because and they, of the expansion? Yeah, because, and because they were forced, you know, the business models that were written around them were all very com- commercially focused. Right. So, uh, As in self-sustaining yeah, eventually after yeah, the initial investment. Absolutely right. So, so you take something like Baltic yeah. in, in Gateshead, for example, you put an art gallery in a place that doesn't have the infrastructure for an art gallery, yeah. uh, you put it in a building that nobody's ever built an art gallery in before, uh, you task it with a, a commercial business model around completely funding itself, and then you say, and it has to have non-traditional audiences going yeah, there. Yeah. You're not used to going to art galleries, you not used to spending a lot. Of money. I mean, it, it's a bit mad when you yeah, think about yeah. it. And, and, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that, that those things had to go through several iterations before they reached a kind of sensible yeah. way forward, which is never going to be a self-sustaining business yeah. model, but is going to be, you know, has, has sort of elements of, of different funding and elements of programme that appeals to you know audiences who are perhaps more sophisticated in in baltus case in terms of contemporary art and audiences which are more you know going to just drop in and do an activity yeah. or whatever so there was a sort of a sense of an ideal cultural venue created which was big and shiny and beautiful yeah. but that was going to fund itself somehow yeah yeah as opposed to you know and where we've got to and then as you say there's a sort of policy framework around this as well in in particularly in the the kind of labor government in the in the mid to late 90s who, uh, and, the, and the then Culture Secretary, Chris Smith, who will come up later in our discussions, I'm sure, who had this very clear view that, that arts and culture could deliver for the country, yeah. uh, and particularly around uh, uh, economic and social uh, uh, challenges that the country was facing, or opportunities that, that yeah. were there at the time. And I think that did change, that it changed the landscape, and, it, and we you know, we're still in that. We've maybe gone through a kind of couple of cycles since then, but we're back. Certainly back there, I think very strongly now, where uh, arts and culture are very much seen as drivers for social change and economic you regeneration. Know.
0: Chris Smith, of course, is, is responsible, or you could the figurehead for free entry to museums. So quite a kind of major change that happens. And is, do you think that, that that's tied in to this significant change that we've seen in attitudes towards venues? Or do you think people at that point were seeing that as a fairly cynical
1: move? Or Well, I'm quite cynical about this because Chris Smith, uh, who is somebody I know very well now and like very much, uh, was a, a London uh, MP. Yep. And he uh, has very strong views that London, in particular, has struggled over there are, there are parts of London that suffer some of the greatest deprivation in the country yeah. and that a lot of focus is often pushed onto the north or the northeast or other parts of the country and bits of London get forgotten about because there's such pockets of wealth in London, it's yeah, very vibrant. Yeah. So, so he still thinks that now and, and particularly did think that at the time. And, and I think, uh, you know, free entry to museums was very much about London museums, about national yeah, museums yeah. And, and what happened was that it set an agenda that then kind of created an environment in which people in the regions felt they had to offer free entry to museums as well. Yeah. Uh, some of which already were free and some of which weren't and, and, and I think it's caused a lot of confusion in the system. So uh, big, the big London National Museums are funded to be free, uh, National Glass Centre isn't funded to be free, but it's in an environment in which free, free museums are yeah, considered yeah. to be the norm. So, uh, so you know, the university, which does fund it, has made the choice to, to fund it to, to fund, be free. Yeah, yeah. But there's no central government funding yeah. to help that. So so, so I think there was a little bit of smoke and mirrors there where, yeah, where like essentially central government funded the big London museums to be free to London residents and to tourists. Yeah. And, of course, you could argue there was a, a strong tourism imperative around that. Uh, but it set an environment where everybody suddenly then felt museums should be free. Yeah. And if you were a museum like Beadsworld, to go back to Beadsworld, which had a business model which couldn't be free, that was a real challenge for you, particularly yeah. when, in the rest of Tyne and Weir, they'd followed this sort of London lead and said, oh, well, we're going to make all of our museums free, uh, with one or two minor exceptions, uh, which which then, so then people would turn up at Beadsworld and say, well, we thought all museums were free. So how did you end up at Woodhorn? So you've been at Beadsworld. Yes, yeah, so, so I, so I did. Be- so I, I have to say, I, Love bes all it was it was a, a labor of love to a certain extent, yeah. you know, it was in my hometown. it was something i'd really
0: so it brought together all of those about. things that you'd yeah. done and, and more of an interest because you talked about that archaeological kind of absolutely yeah. interest yeah. as
1: a as a child yeah and and, and so it, it you know it ticked a lot of boxes for me to set this in uh, but i was I suppose I was at a stage where i wasn't sure what I wanted to do next uh, and then something really interesting, another really interesting opportunity presented itself, probably via the internet, I'm hoping this time. <laughs> uh, and it was uh, uh, an, a brand new scheme that had just been set up that nobody knew anything about called the Claw Leadership Programme. And it was, uh, this was the in- invention primarily of a lady called uh, Dame Vivian Duffield, who was a very wealthy philanthropist. Her father was a, 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 made a massive fortune in the banking industry, uh, but she was a huge giver of money to the arts to the arts and culture particularly to the national museums you go around uh, various national museums uh, or galleries and you'll see the Claw learning yep. gallery or whatever that's that's essentially her money being spent on that and what she found what she sensed was that there was a bit of a crisis in leadership within particularly within some of those national institutions so there'd right. been a f- there'd been a few high profile failures uh, nationally and regionally in, in some of the big museums and galleries which d- had caused some embarrassment for the government and uh, problems for those those agencies' financial problems that she was then being asked to kind of help out with. And she commissioned... Uh, Just to ask a question about that, was, the, was that a result of an overstretching
0: at the time in terms of the ambition of some of those programmes and the link to the, the Heritage Lottery Fund. So All of a sudden there's more money available and then the skill set that sits behind
1: that, people are expected to kind of step up into those roles. Absolutely, and and, and in a way that's what she did was she she funded a piece of research, which uh, was done by uh, Demos, a think tank, uh, and they essentially looked at what were the factors that were causing this to happen, and what they concluded was was kind of what we were talking about before, that there was a a lot of organisations were run by specialists who didn't have, who'd been expected, who'd been sort of pushed into these positions of running large, now what were large, multi-million pound independent organisations. Yeah but without the skill set to necessarily is, yeah. do it. And that the, we'd been very lucky because some of those people had been brilliant at it. And then, But then when they were stepping down, there wasn't necessarily an obvious successor or bank of people. Yeah. And that as we were investing more money around the country in new venues and new, gen, gen, gen new venues, the, the skill, there weren't the people to do that. You know, come back to that yeah. thing we were talking about before, the sort of chief exec was rather than curators. Yeah. And, and in particular, I think there was a, a belief that... Uh, I, I think I, I, we'll talk, I, I eventually joined what became this programme, but I was quite unusual because what they were really interested in was people who were curators or were, who were dancers or performers or theatre directors, yeah. and whether they could help them develop the skills to run those big institutions. And so, so, so they came up with this idea of a, a leadership programme that would invest the, again, uh, Claude Duffield Foundation would put a lot of money into, uh, they were able to draw in money from Arts Council and the big funders at the time to create quite a lot of well funded thing, yeah. Which, yeah, yeah. which was going to invest. And uh, I, I think it may actually have even been my chair at Beadsworld who pushed me towards it and said, Look, you should have a look at this. Yeah. This is a really interesting opportunity. It had never been done before, nobody knew what it was, but it basically said. So, like, were you in the first round of the call? Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, so I applied for that. And, and not really knowing what it was, I think, particularly, and it, right. maybe that comes back to that being interested in stuff, yeah, and just, you know, yeah. seeing an opportunity. And yeah. one of the amazing things about that was that they would buy you out of your organization. So Beadsworld, which was a, you know, not a rich organization, uh, if I'd said, oh, I want to go off and spend a year finding myself or whatever, yeah. they would, that would be hard for them. But if they said, I said, I want to go off and spend a year finding myself and somebody will pay you for the, to yeah, buy me absolutely. out, yeah. uh, they were, you know, great. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's what happened. Uh, I applied to be on that. There were there were a lot of about a thousand applications. They picked twenty six people. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a bit weird, I suppose, to think about now. But you know, the Guardian ran a big piece of the, uh, these are the twenty six people who will change <laughs> culture in the UK forever. Yeah. Uh, so to be so it's, in a sense, part of that. Did cohort. you put that on your wall as well? Yeah. No, I did. I was, well, like, <laughs> it's amazing to be something. It's it's amazing. Something, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I don't think it was necessarily true. And, and of course, now there have been. 14 or 15 years, years of, of it yeah. so there are another see so they're churning out you know so there's a lot of those yeah. people now we're going to change us in the uk forever it's become a very different program to say. interestingly and i said we come back to this that the person who was chosen to be the director of that program was chris smith yeah. who had been the culture secretary and recently stepped down from politics uh, uh although subsequently was was uh, elevated to the house of lords so it's sort of back he I mean, was obviously involved in politics, but was no longer an imperial or yeah. government minister and, uh, but had this real passion for, for arts and culture and are very in- incredibly well connected. And so I did poor leadership Programme and part of that was a lot of time of self-reflection on how you'd got to that point in your career, but also uh, development of skills and experience. But, but most importantly, I suppose, was a real opportunity to connect with other people and yeah. other organisations and to work at a national level again. And, which is when you stuck up in Jarrow you know, can sometimes seem yeah. a long way off, so it enabled me to re-engage nationally. In things. So that networking thing
0: there, I mean, that the, there is, I think, from what you've said, that networking thing has been quite important all the way through. So do you think that's what they were seeing in you when they selected you for CLAW, and that's what you could potentially
1: capitalise on? Yeah, I think so. It's, it's funny, actually, because uh, the the, de- the deputy director then, uh, a lady called Sue Hoyle, who went on to be the director of Colonial industry programmes, recently retired, yeah. and I saw her... at. A, a retirement party and, and should I I always remember your interview Keith you know, Partly because it was the first year partly because I juggled at my interview uh, which is always a <laughs> thing. Uh, but it but yeah I think and I think it was that yeah that they were looking for people who were just a little bit yeah you know, that had a bit of a spark or yeah. a bit maybe a bit different yeah. to, the peer relationship between the people on the course
0: seems really important so that they seem to be links that continue on way beyond
1: that Participation in the program in a formal sense, uh, absolutely, and, and and you know the network is is probably the the, the lasting benefit from that. So you know, on my claw cohort were the now director of the Tate, yeah, and the now deputy director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. So yeah. you know, suddenly those are those are my personal friends. Who yeah, are running yeah, yeah big who have gone through these uh, uh, sort of elevation of you know, roles and, and yeah. So that's quite. You, I wouldn't say I'm on the phone them all the time, no, But you know, it's no, nice to know. But you know that you can connect yeah, with them. Yeah. I mean,
0: would you say that you go to those people, or you, you know, you talk to each other at different points in your careers when you're face, you know, when you're faced with different difficult dilemmas to, to kind yeah. of sound them out? Which that that something that you were saying that potentially was missing during that initial stage of. Um, cultural expansion in terms of physical infrastructure in the country you know that there might have been a
1: deficit in those kind of skills uh, uh, you know amongst the workforce that are there. Yeah absolutely no I think I think yeah that is and I, and I suppose the second big thing that through well two other the th- big things through doing the leadership program that, that were important one was mentoring which you, you, you mentioned and I was very lucky again in that uh, I Chose as my mentor, and he accepted me. A guy called Mike uh, Day, who at the time was the chief executive of the Historic Royal Palaces. Right. Okay. It was actually relatively new into the role at the time, which was really interesting. And he'd gone and and, and uh, he's a, uh, a, a very good mentor, apart from anything else. But had he been running Jersey Heritage Trust or something like that, yeah. and there was then suddenly running. Hampton Court Palace. Yeah, actually. So he he himself was kind of going, "How do, how much I get?" Yeah, yeah. Uh, But was but, uh, but so that was really interesting, and, and I had a really uh, strong relationship with him, and still do, uh, which I found very helpful over not just over the time I was doing Claw, but actually since yeah. then, you know, I can I still know I can phone him up and talk it through. The oh, hallmarks of a good mentor that you yeah, yeah. continue on beyond. The, kind of immediate connection that you have for a formal scheme in some way yeah and, and and as a result of that I've always where I can engaged in mentoring you know offering to be a mentor or yeah. or, or, or you know one or two other people have been really helpful to me in that sense in my career uh, as as mentors and and so you know I'm, I'm a big advocate for that, for that yeah uh, and then the second thing it did was that as I mentioned it bought you out of your organization and it gave me the opportunity to to go and work for somebody else. In a, as a sort, of, I, in theory, it was meant to be a kind of work placement. Yeah. But it turned into into a little bit more than that for me. So I went to work for Newcastle Gateshead Initiative, in the immediate aftermath of them not being awarded European Capital of Culture, uh, and arrived there. I think originally to spend ten weeks there or something, and, and ended up there for seven or eight months. Because the person I went to work alongside, pretty much straight away announced that he was leaving, right. and they asked me, and he said, "He said it's all right." He says, I'm le- "I've got two things to say. The one is, I'm leaving, but it's all right because you're here now." <laughs> <laughs> and I went, oh, "Okay." <laughs> what meant that was a, uh, again a really brilliant and uh, incredibly dynamic time because I was essentially then given, given the responsibility to set up. The successor programme to uh, to the European Capital Culture Programme, which was then thing called Culture 10, which had already been designed, but uh, I had to actually make it real. And yeah. as I say, not only did he leave, but the chief executive of NGI had left at the time, so there yeah, was this yeah. kind of deficit of leadership. So I was the only chief executive that worked there. Right. Uh, <laughs> so were you formally still at Beads at yeah, this point? Well, and, well and, and what happened was they turned it into a... A more long-term common, right. so what NGI started paying Beadsworld World for my time right, okay. to buy me out, because I that's a really difficult kind yeah. of thing to juggle there, yeah. isn't it? And and you know, inevitably, being out of Beadsworld for that long inevitably led in to me leaving, leaving. I and mean, that was wasn't yeah. in, in and I suppose my chair knew that, I me mean, probably knew that when he encouraged me to go for the, the floor in the first place. place. Yeah, but yeah. it was an opportunity for my deputy at the time who uh, was able to step up and, yeah. and do things there, but. Uh, the time at NGI yeah pro- and it was probably the in many ways uh, helped me to understand the, the sort of the importance of partnership and collaboration yeah. which had always been important in my career, but that sense that as NGI what we had was money, uh, what everybody else had was art form venues yeah. Uh, yeah. ideas projects, and trying to join those things up and make them work yeah. and uh, was, was really rewarding. It was, wasn't without its difficulties, there was a bit of resentment. You know, you've got the money, but I've got the product yeah. kind of thing. But uh, I really, I think it really, you know, at that point in time, uh, I was probably the right person to be there at that point. I mean, it was probably good for me in that it needed somebody who could operate in a very fluid way. Yeah. There were no structures, you weren't more, and, and this, you know, again, is probably a feature of my career is that I've, I've had to invent things that I can make them up as I go along, create yeah. new structures, create new things, uh, rather than somebody saying, here's your job, do yeah, it sort of the, thing, yeah. you know. Uh, it's always been been self-generated, uh, which probably makes me impossible to employ in a proper job now, I don't know. <laughs> almost everybody that I've spoken to you at some point in the
0: conversation says that kind of thing. There's almost an slight imposter syndrome about the fact that this is an amalgamation of skills that you've gained and then you've said they're about proper job is that something that you feel
1: or have felt in your career sometimes yeah i I suppose i suppose what i meant by that was more of i i'm quite lucky in that uh i don't need a lot of structure and i think other people who i work with who are brilliant at their jobs but need more structure yeah and and uh just this week, I had a conversation with somebody, and, and I said, You know, we, we need to do this, and it's going to be great. And come on, you know, come with me and yeah. do it. And he turned to me and he said, I'd really like you to write it down for me. You know, I didn't know what it is yeah. you're asking me to do, whereas I was hoping he was just going to go with it. You know, it's going to be great. So you can get so, you can get so far with that, and, and yeah. I, I know that. Uh, you know, as I say, that, that served me well personally, but it isn't for everybody to, yeah. to just, you know, go with it. And, and, and well, it
0: goes and back and to what you were saying about the job yeah. titles before, yeah. and you were quite fluid with that yeah. and kind of open about that. So, yeah. but, but for, for that and,
1: particular point in time with Culture 10 at Newcastle, that was absolutely wanted. It needed somebody to just go with it because it, right. it would have, because there was no definition there was some, there were, and there was nobody needed, else to yeah. do it, and somebody's, and it didn't exist before, yeah. so somebody had to. You know, yeah. it became, over time, it became much more structured and, you know, they brought in permanent staff and that was all great. Yeah. But at that time, it just needed somebody who could... There were some very immediate things that it had to launch in that. Yeah. In the the, the following April or whatever, that was the October, you know, it
0: had... So, was the vision
1: unfolding, as you learn on the job? I think what? I was... In, with that, I was delivering somebody else's vision. So, I think that's probably quite important that, that's, you know, the, the in the immediate aftermath of the City of Culture... Yeah. They created this idea of... That's really difficult. Yeah, but nobody had really worked out how it was actually going to happen. Yeah. And, and, and my job now is, is similar in some ways, in that I think there's a really clear understanding of where we want to get to. Yeah. But nobody's really thought about how you make it yeah, happen. Yeah. And a lot of what I do is, is sort of filling the gaps, make, yeah. it, make it all seem logical. So, how long were you at It was engineering? about eight months. In the right, end. okay. And then Woodhorn, and then I went back to Beadsworld. Oh right, okay. And I remember going, back and going, oh, <laughs> that's a bit <laughs> weird, having done a leadership programme yeah. and having worked in this kind of incredibly dynamic and slightly bonkers environment at Culture Town and yeah. then going back to to running this museum, which was great. And as I say, I loved loved it dearly, yeah, yeah. but it, it felt odd to go back. Yeah, and yeah. I think it felt odd for the staff, and when I had be, so, so then uh, the. Job came up uh, as director of Woodhorn, and I didn't apply for it because it wasn't something I was particularly interested in. And then uh, they came back to me again and said, "Are you sure you don't want to apply for this? And uh, you do know it's going to come out because at the time it was run by a local authority. You don't know, yeah. come out with the local authorities, and we need somebody who can move to trust, move, and yeah. run it independently." And and I thought, oh, well, maybe that's more interesting then. yeah uh, to get to create a completely new organisation from yeah, scratch." Yeah. And and uh, was was I suppose the more appealing thing than the actual site itself. So does Woodhorn represent then a, a challenge
0: you're kind of talking about the Culture 10 and, and Newcastle Gateshead initiative as having money to bring these people together so does Woodhorn represent the opposite side of that which is it? we're heading into a period of austerity linked to
1: local authority cuts there and well, then- I, Yeah I mean that was, that was a, again I another fascinating time because yeah you're absolutely right it was just as austerity was really kicking in
0: um, so you, when did you start Woodhorn? Yeah, 2007?
1: and seven, eight. I think. Right. Right. So just right as, as yeah. the banking crash yeah, happened, just and then bank. the following year. But the interesting thing was that they'd gone through their big lottery redevelopment yeah. at that time. Uh, absolutely beautiful building that they created, a huge investment in that. And as part of that, the key partners, who were two different local authorities, had committed quite a lot of funding yeah. into that over a five-year period. And in fairness to those local authorities, which at the time were going through their own reorganisation to become a single local authority, they kept most of that funding on the table. Right. And actually, uh, that was brilliant for me. So I came in, and it was like t- year two of that five-year agreement. Yeah. And I knew that I had three years, and then there was going to be a massive a drop big, off the cliff yeah, edge. Yeah. Which was better than a lot of people, because a lot of people were just waiting one in day and were being it, told yeah. their budgets were being cut by fifty percent or whatever. Cause, yeah. You know, uh so so in some ways I think I was quite lucky again that that I had an opportunity to do that and it, you know, we always knew that there was a point where it was all gonna drop off and we yeah. had a short amount of time to to bet and it was a very similar challenge I suppose to Beadsworld World again. It had undergone a big redevelopment, lost its identity a little bit in that process. Yeah. It lost its focus a little bit. Everybody was focused on opening the thing, you know, building it yeah, building. Yeah, in it. The, the, the building yeah. as opposed to the, yeah. Yeah, as opposed to what it actually did, yeah. you know, and, and what it, and, and, and... I think that's quite common, isn't it? Even if it's, you know, absolutely accidental, it's quite a common Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think it is, yeah. And, and again, it, 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 had, it had lost its connection to its community, yeah. and its community was very much in need of being connected to. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of the work that I did in, in the period that I was there was was about reconnecting it back into its community and delivering value back into its community. Yeah. Which was about, you know, was was about bringing in big exhibitions that would attract thousands of people. Yeah. But that was because that was delivering economic value back. Yeah. back. It was also about some of the smaller projects where which were able to really, you know, dig into some of the problems that were facing that community which was a post uh, industrial coal mining community which had lost all its all its industry and most yeah. of its jobs uh, had real issues around social deprivation and and uh, mental health and, and other things like that, that, that we were able to have a big impact on. And in fact, we were, were right at the vanguard of a, a movement then, which uh, was about, uh, again, about engaging people with arts and culture as a way to improve their yeah. their lives and, and various things in their lives. And uh, Arts Council were very interested in that at the time and had developed a new scheme called Creative People in Places, which was a... A big flagship scheme for them around audiences, and try and say, well, we do a lot of great art, but how do we get audi- how do we get to make sure that reaches those people who don't ordinarily yeah, yeah. engage? And uh, we were able to, we were like one of the first six places in the UK that were able to access that funding, bring it in, and, and embed, and, that, within and embed that within the organization, within the organization, rather than and. and even a few years ago, Arts Council had no responsibility for museums, yeah, yeah. so we were seen as a bit of an oddity at the time as being a, a museum, a heritage organisation that was using arts and culture, including heritage, to engage audiences that don't normally engage and more importantly, to actually have an impact on their lives. It's during... become something of a priority though, hasn't it? So Absolutely, So there's been this massive yeah. move as museums have moved into the Arts Council's sphere of influence. Yeah. Which is why I say I think we were a sort of vanguard of that because we, yeah. you know, we were we one of the first to really pick that up and run with it in a big yeah. way and and you know what was great about that is it attracted significant resource and enabled us to to make huge steps forward in doing that.
0: Woodhorn moved to Trust whilst you were there, yep. and then there's also
1: other venues that that are linked to Woodhorn. But was your title at that point director? Yeah, so it was director of Woodhorn working within the local authority. I never considered myself to work for the local authority. Yeah, and I made that really clear to everybody at the start. <laughs> So even though you know I was being paid by the local authority theoretically in their in their management structure, I just ignored you that. Were, and yeah. I saw myself as you know, and that was really important. And and it was really important for the staff and for everybody to feel that they you know from day one this that wasn't were, a this, bit this wasn't a you, bit of the, the local authority. Yeah, this was it a completely different thing. Yeah. Because it's about identity, yeah. isn't it? And in fact, it took it took. A couple of years to actually get it out of the local authority but yeah. from day one it, it, we behaved as if we were independent yeah. and i recruited a trustee board quite quickly so although the trustee board weren't actually running the organization they they acted as working in the way work. that so, you would so, as if yeah. you were a trust already yeah. so that by the time it all we disentangled which is complicated yeah. disentangling you know there's issues around safeguarding benefits for staff and all sorts of things that are important in all that by the time we had done all that disentangling uh, you know, and there was no question that it was an independent organisation, it wasn't a bit of the local authority, they have been hived off somewhere. Yeah. Uh, which you see sometimes in, 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 you know, with some local authority trusts, they still behave like a local authority. Yeah. They're still tied into local authority policies and procedures and uh, political influence and all sorts of things, whereas Oudhorn very much behaves behaved from day one. And yeah. Partly because, and that's partly why I took the role, was to do that, to say it, it's not a bit of the local authority, it's entirely so, independent. So, in a similar way that you, you talked about how at
0: Sunderland you, your bream grown to be responsible for a lot of different venues there or different projects that are happening there, a similar thing happens there at Woodhorn, doesn't it? So, you're responsible for
1: for other yeah. venues across Northumberland? So, so it's partly, uh, again, a, a, a fortuitous timing issue that at the same time as, as we were setting Woodhorn up as an independent trust. Northumberland was undergoing reorganisation in its local authority structure, so It was moving from a situation where you had what was called a two-tier authority with a county council and then district councils yeah. to a single council for the whole of Northumberland. So Woodhorn, for example, had been funded by a district council and the county council was yeah. now only funded by the county council. But then what fell out of that was two or three other uh, small museums, well, three, in fact, <laughs> small yeah. museums that in uh, Berwick, Woodward and Hexham, that had been run by district councils that now the county council had inherited but had no infrastructure no, yeah. to manage them because all of its, I'd in a sense taken all its museum staff with me to, yeah. to set up Woodhorn. So, uh, at the t- And this comes back to your question about austerity as well, in that the council needed to make significant cuts to its budget as yeah. it came together and they'd said they were going to protect the Woodhorn budget but I didn't include protecting the budgets for those other little museums. Yeah. So they were in they were a very significant threat of being closed down at the time. Yeah. And uh, I, with the support of my trustees, went to the county council and said, we'll take that problem off your hands. We'll run those for you for no extra money. Yeah. And that was a very, that was a very uh, deliberate proposal that we made because we felt that it was, it was helpful to the local authority to do that. And Bear in mind, the local authority was our biggest funder. Yeah. It, 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 safe, it would potentially safeguard those museums. It would help the local authority because a lot of it, it didn't want to close those yeah, museums, yeah. And it you know, wanted to keep them open for those local communities. Uh, so it enabled us to, to protect those museums and it gave us a county wide remit. So yeah. now we were dealing with a single county authority. Yeah. It made sense for us to have a county wide remit. It made us a, a more a stable organisation and a more attractive organisation.
0: You were at Woodhorn for about 10 years, I think, in yeah, total. Yeah, eight years. And yeah. then from there on to the Glass Centre at Sunderland. Yeah. Did your remit grow really
1: quickly as soon as you got to Sunderland? No, it was really before I, you know, so, so I saw the advert to, as director of the National Glass Oh, and, so it was growing before you got there? And, and didn't apply for it because right. I didn't particularly, you know, that, that to me didn't seem to be a massive change to, you know, yeah. it was an absolutely brilliant venue, obviously. Uh, but it, for me personally, I didn't particularly want to go and work for a university running, a, yeah. you know, as I've already said, all my skill set was in running independent organisations. And then they came back to me again and said, you do realise, it's a bit similar to the one, you do realise that this is what's planned for Sunderland. Yeah. And we're going through a city of culture, and and eventually we want to get to there. And I said, well, that that is interesting to me, really, this idea, this opportunity to create a new organisation again, which would take the National Glass Centre, which is without a doubt, you know, one of the the, the best venues that we have in the region and put it alongside some of the other venues that, you know, over the years hadn't had the same kind of investment, and, cre- and some new venues that were being built and create something completely new that yeah. nobody's ever seen before. There's a really interesting pattern, I think, that's that's happened
0: now, which is that the, the natural, natural progression was director of venues and then you work towards a national in some way. Um, at, at the moment, there seems to be quite a dynamic shift happening where you can end up with much more wide ranging and potentially interesting jobs at an extremely senior level career-wise within the regions that bring together those venues in partnership or link those things together. You know, obviously the experience that you've had um, taking over the project post City of Culture with Newcastle Gateshead, and then obviously the bid that you worked on for Sunderland starts to become as big as anything that you could possibly do in what would be seen 20 years ago as
1: a, a traditional director role within a national venue or international venue. Yeah, that's probably true, and I think I think also, and it, I suppose it comes back to my particular skills and interest is that those big national venues are very traditional yeah. in their structure and in their behaviour. Yeah, and uh, you know, whilst I'm sure you can express your personality through them, it's probably a lot harder yeah. than it is through an organisation that you can build and mould yeah. yourself. So uh, I think that you know, it, it probably suits me more to. You know yes there it's great there are opportunities in the region as well but it also probably suits me as an mm-hmm. individual and also uh, my skill set much more to yeah. to do that what advice would you give somebody that's starting out in the sector I think uh, not being too fixed in what you think you want to do I know that's kind of easy for me to say but uh, you know the, things are changing and they're changing all the time and uh, there's a lot more reactive work going on and and that brings opportunities with it. Yeah. And sometimes, uh, uh, you know, having a flexible approach to that will, will stand you in good stead. Yeah. So that, uh, yeah, so, so flexi- flexibility, uh, being open to opportunities uh, and not too fixed in, in the way that you want to work. And that's not to say there aren't kind of traditional yeah. roles, you know, there still are, you know, we still employ curators and. Collections people and, and front of house people and learn, you know. So yeah, those roles. Yeah. So our head of arts, you know, spends spends a lot of our time running fundraising bids yeah, and, of course. Uh, you know, doing management stuff. And and our learning people spend a lot of time working, you know, not just doing schools visits, but you know, working with 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 experts around uh, people with dementia and, and all sorts of things, you know, in community settings. So yeah, the, the sort of the nature, the ways of working are changing all the time. Uh, Partnerships, I would say, and collaborations. Those, you know, learning the skills that enable you to operate in those environments is absolutely key. Yeah. Every everything we do now is done with another partner in one way or another. Whether whether we do, it's almost like you, you don't necessarily think about it now. But as I say, with for example, our dementia work, you know, we're working with uh, Age UK and we're working with Equal Arts and we're working with you know, it's constant yeah. partnership yeah. working. Yeah, yeah. And and I think and coming back to the discussion about some of the big. Nationals and the big the big institutions are slow to that. They tend to think they can do everything themselves. Yeah. And and I think one of the great things uh, working in the regions now is, is that perhaps driven by austerity to a certain extent. Perhaps driven by by other things is that ability to seek out partners and find like minded people. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that that's not always straightforward. You know, it requires you sometimes to have to uh, compromise or have to change. You know, Give it, yeah. which comes back to the flexibility thing. As again, you know, so, so in. In a lot of our work now we know where we we have a broad vision of where we want to get to yeah but we're quite happy to be flexible in. i'm making hand movements which is not that useful <laughs> in my ways flexible in in uh, how we get there yeah okay that's fabulous thank you very much for your time thank you
0: thanks for listening to the podcast Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project, or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com.